Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 is at least where we'll start off this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the chair in front of you. We would love for you to have that or to give it to someone who might need it. We will be reading from verse 12 through 17. I know your order of worship says verse 14, but we'll back up just a couple verses there. We are in the third week, as you've already heard of our mission's emphasis. I was thinking one of the the most encouraging and motivating things you can do as a Christian is to read about the lives and ministries of missionaries that God has used to get the gospel to difficult places. And there's all kinds of good ones out there, and none of these men and women were perfect, Okay, but they do give us flesh and blood examples of what it looks like to trust the Lord and what it looks like to forsake comfort and security, at least earthly security, to make Christ known. One of the most amazing accounts in this respect is the life and ministry of a Presbyterian missionary from Scotland named John Patton. You can get a great snapshot of his life and John Piper's little book, Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ. You can also listen to it for free online. Patton served as a missionary to what was then called the New Hebrides Islands. And just to give you an idea of the context here of the New Hebrides Islands, it's no longer called that. When the first Christian missionaries arrived there in the the late 1830s, There were two men, and within minutes of going on shore, they were killed and eaten by cannibals. John Patton and his wife Mary, then in the mid-1800s, sailed to the New Hebrides. Within six months, Patton lost his wife and a newborn son to a fever. But he continued to serve there for four years in constant danger, eventually being driven off the island. At which point he went home and served as a missions mobilizer. He was actually very effective at this. Right? But he wasn't satisfied with that. So he ended up marrying again his second wife, Margaret, and they went back over to a new island in the New Hebrides. There he and his wife served for 41 years until John Patton was 81 years old. One of the questions... I want to help us answer this morning, not based on my wisdom, but based on God's word is, why would anyone do this? Why would anyone uproot their life and their family to go across the world to a really difficult place like this? This isn't the only difficult place in the world, obviously. Right, a place that doesn't even want to hear the message you have to proclaim. Right, and we could bring this question even a little closer to home. Why would we as a church send and support people to go to places like this? We have lost people all around us in Cahaba Heights. We have a limited budget, a limited number of people. Right, getting the gospel to these places is not cheap, it's not easy. So why set aside part of our budget at least? 
to partner with people in difficult places in the world. And this morning, I want to let a few passages from the book of Romans help us answer this question. So this sermon is a little bit different. Not only is it topical, but we'll be jumping around a little bit. But everything will be in the book of Romans, okay? Only a few pages of flipping here. So I think we're all up to it. Okay, we, you won't have to flip very far, but I, I do want to say from the outset that this is only one part of our mission. It's a, it's a really important part. I hope to convince you of that. But if you didn't get to hear the last couple weeks, I would encourage you to go listen to that as well. As we think about our local mission and our global mission, it's not an either or. Okay, it's a both and. You can go back and listen to Corey kind of lay that out from two weeks ago. Okay, but this morning I want to focus on one specific part of our mission. Okay, what I'm calling is our mission to those who have little or no access to the gospel currently, what is sometimes referred to as the unreached. Okay, and I'm going to explain that term in just a minute. But first, let's read our passage and then we'll begin to think about some of its implications for us and our mission as a church. Okay, so I'll begin reading in verse 12 of Romans 10, just to, so we can catch the flow of thought before we get to verses 14 through 17. Romans 10, verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, would you now give us understanding into your word by your spirit so that we might behold the glory of Christ and better understand the mission he has given us. Give us grace to respond in faith and obedience. We acknowledge that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, given that we have just kind of jumped into the middle of the book of Romans, right, which is not a lightweight in terms of the books, in terms of the books of the Bible, I think it'd be helpful at least get our bearings. Okay. We won't have time to recap nine chapters worth, but I think it's helpful for us to see in terms of the book as a whole, two of Paul's major concerns. Okay. You don't have to flip there yet, but in the opening chapter of Romans, Paul wants to prove to the church at Rome that the gospel he proclaims is the gospel that everyone needs, Jews and Gentiles. Okay, Remember, a Gentile is just a non-Jew. So he's essentially saying the gospel I proclaim is everyone's greatest need. Okay, Here in Romans 10, he's making the case that even though Israel had heard the gospel, most of them had rejected it. 
They had failed to see that the righteousness that God requires of every person doesn't come by keeping the works of the law. It comes simply by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And Paul says this salvation is available to all people. Look at verse 13 again that we just read. Paul says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all you have to do. Call out in faith to the Lord and you will be saved. And this prompts Paul to ask a series of rhetorical questions here. These questions help us understand why it's so important that we go and send and support people working in hard to reach places. Okay, but before we unpack these questions, I think it'll be helpful just to get a couple of Paul's major concerns here. I've listed one, but the second one is in Romans 15, Paul tells the church in Rome his ambition is to make the gospel known where it is not now known. Romans 15:20. He wants to make Christ known where Christ is not now known. And we might even say the book of Romans is one part theological masterpiece, another part missionary support letter. Okay? In some ways, it's both of those things. Paul is on his way to proclaim the gospel to Spain and he wants the church at Rome to support him. Okay? For Paul, Spain would have been one of those places that today we consider unreached. I want us to be clear, though, in terms of how I'm using that term. It's not a term you find in Scripture, but I think the concept is there. Okay, People use this term in various ways. Okay, I've already used it multiple times, and maybe you're thinking, well, what exactly do you mean by unreached here? Okay, And I'm, I'm borrowing this definition. Um, David Platt and some others are certainly not the only ones, but uh, my... Uh, my thinking on this has certainly been influenced by him and a lot of this message has, but helped us in terms of defining and clarifying what we mean by unreached. Okay, so let me begin with the definition of what I mean by unreached. Unreached peoples and places are those among whom Christ is largely unknown and the church is relatively insufficient to make Christ known in its broader population without outside help. Okay, I know that's a mouthful. Okay, but just to simplify it, these are people groups and places where Christ is not known and there are few, if any, churches there to make him known in relation to the population as a whole. Okay, we might think in terms of, when we think of the unreached, we might think in terms of gospel access. Okay, this is what differentiates someone who's lost from someone who is unreached. Okay, your next door neighbor may be lost, but he or she is not unreached in the sense that I'm using it. Okay, because they have access to the gospel. They live in a city and in a community with thousands of Christians and hundreds of churches. There are Bibles and Christian resources all around Birmingham. Right? They live next door to you and probably other Christians in the neighborhood. They have access at some level to the gospel. It doesn't mean they believe it. It doesn't even mean that they've heard it explained clearly. Okay, We don't want to assume that. Right? But they don't. They don't have the same level of access that the unreached have. 
Okay, that doesn't mean that sharing the gospel with a Christian neighbor isn't eternally important. It absolutely is. We would be failing in our mission if we ignored Cahaba Heights and the surrounding areas and only thought of places far away. But it does mean that we should be aware of areas in the world where there is little or no gospel access. This is what it means to be unreached. According to some estimates today, there are over 3 billion people who are considered unreached, who fit that definition. Little or no access to the gospel. Almost no chance that they're going to run into a Christian or see a church. Okay, there are many different reasons for that. In some cases, people groups have rejected the gospel for generations. In some cases, they are geographically isolated and just difficult to get to. Some places there's persecution from the government or from just surrounding community. There's war and violence, famine and poverty. There's all kinds of reasons. In some cases, we just haven't made the effort to get there. Okay, about 3 billion people fit in that category spread across about 7,000 people groups. Okay, that's, a, that's another term that's helpful to think about as we think about our mission. A people group is a, is a group of people, I know that, that's news to you, a people group is a group of people who share a common language, culture, and, and ethnicity. Okay, and you'll get different numbers as to how many people groups there actually are. The Bible doesn't give us a precise definition here, but when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, okay, the nations as we know them didn't exist today, at least in the form they're in today. He's likely talking about something much closer to what we would refer to as a people group. Okay, this is important because in order to reach people groups, we have to know their language and their culture. Okay, that doesn't happen in a matter of weeks or even months. Typically takes years, sometimes decades to do it effectively. The missionaries that we send and support are seeking to make disciples and plant self-sustaining churches in hard-to-reach places. That's a long and often difficult process. It doesn't mean that every global partner is working in a place that, like John Patton ministered in that I mentioned earlier. But it does mean we want to be intentional about getting the gospel to places where there's little or no gospel access. So as we think about getting the gospel to the unreached, I want to spend the rest of our time Using the book of Romans to answer three questions. Okay, three questions when it comes to the unreached. Number one, what is their spiritual standing before God? Those who have never heard the name of Christ, never heard the gospel, what is their spiritual standing before God? Number two, what is their greatest need? What is their greatest need? And then number three, what should our response be? What should our response be? Okay, I'm afraid, as we think about this first question, what is their spiritual standing? I'm afraid that many Christians have not thought through this question very well. You know, sometimes we have this vague notion that if people have never heard the gospel, then they're going to be judged by a different standard. After all, how could God punish them for rejecting a message they've never heard? 
Sometimes people assume that the unreached will be okay as long as they follow the light they've been given. People ask, how could God condemn someone who's innocent to hell? This view may sound compassionate, but it has some fatal flaws. First, we need to recognize, and I think Romans teaches this clearly, we'll see in a second, there are no innocent people in the world. Regardless of whether you grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, or in a remote village in Nepal, no one is innocent. All people outside of Jesus have inherited Adam's guilt and his sinful nature. In Romans 5.18, Paul says that one trespass, he's talking about Adam's trespass, led to condemnation for all men. All men. We're born this way. That's the first reason we should reject the idea that there are people who are going to be judged by a different standard simply for not hearing the gospel. No one is innocent. Okay, second reason. We've not only inherited Adam's guilt, we have inherited his sinful nature. So it's not only that we're being blamed for someone else, we have sin of our own that condemns us. This is where Romans 1 is particularly sobering. If you would, turn over to Romans chapter 1. Flip back to Romans 1 and we'll begin in verse 18. In this, in this part of Romans, Paul is trying to show that the Gentiles, okay, people without God's Word, without His law, stand guilty of sin and in need of the Gospel. In verse 18, he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul is talking here about what we call general revelation. This is what God reveals to all people everywhere in creation and in their conscience. Paul says in verse 20 that some things are clearly perceived from the things God has made. What God has made clearly shows some things. People know of God's existence. They know basic right and wrong. They know they belong to someone greater. However, instead of this knowledge of God, which all people have, leading them to seek God and to worship Him, notice what it says they do at the end of verse 19. They suppress the truth. And then keep reading. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, okay, they know God. Okay, Think about that. When we talk about getting the gospel to the unreached, they know God at some level. But it says they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Notice what happened. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's what people do who only have the knowledge of God from creation. All people, including the unreached, suppress the truth. And that includes, by the way, you and I before we believe the gospel. We suppress the truth and we exchange the worship of the true God for idols. This is why we can't fall for the lie, the damning lie, that people without access to the gospel are somehow okay. Or that they get a free pass. This is made explicit again in Romans 3.19. If you would flip over another page or two. Romans 3.19. This is really the climax of Paul's argument in chapters 1 through 3 that not only are Gentiles... Not only do they stand condemned before God, in chapter 2 he points out that the Jews stand condemned before God. And then he sums it all up here in 3.19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The entire world, Jews, Gentiles, reached, unreached, Everyone's held accountable to God. And if you actually follow Paul's logic here in chapters 1 through 3, he's saying, look, the Jews had God's word. They had his law. They had the scriptures and they still couldn't deal with their sin problem. So it follows the Gentiles then have no hope without his word. Paul says no one gets off the hook here. The verdict is in all people without exception stand before God condemned in their sin. That includes you and me and that includes those who are currently considered unreached. Apart from Christ, that is. The idea that people are somehow innocent who haven't heard the gospel not only though misunderstands our sin, it misunderstands The free nature of God's grace. Okay, the gospel is not a debt that God owes innocent people. It's an undeserved pardon he offers to those who are already guilty. Okay, you might think about it this way. Imagine, okay, just a thought experiment. Imagine there's a close friend of the president. Okay, this person is found guilty of murder. And so they are sentenced to life in prison. Okay, so they really did the crime. It was a just sentence. They're sentenced to life in prison. But when it comes time for the president to offer pardons, it's a privilege they have, the president chooses not to offer one for this particular guilty person. Okay, question, would we say that it's unfair of the president to do that? Would we complain that this person shouldn't be in prison because they never had a chance to accept the offer of this pardon? No. The person is guilty regardless of whether the pardon is offered. The pardon was not owed to them. And it's similar when it comes to our spiritual standing in the gospel. All people stand guilty before God before they even hear the gospel. The gospel comes to us solely as a free offer of mercy and grace. None of us deserve it. None of us. But we all need it. 
And if you have actually never trusted in this gospel, so set aside the unreached for a second, that includes you and me. If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ based on his death and resurrection to save you, that that would include you. I, I would just encourage you even now to put your trust in him. Come talk to me afterwards. Come talk to another member of this church. Ask questions about what it means to to trust in Jesus. Don't fall for the lie that you're innocent before God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 We need this gospel. This is where our first and second question connect. Okay, If the first question is, what is their spiritual standing before God? We just said all people stand guilty in their sin. This leads us to ask the second question. Then what, in terms of the unreached, what is their greatest need? If they stand condemned in their sin, then what is their greatest need? Okay, this is where we're going to return to Romans 10. So I, I told you you would have to flip a lot. I apologize, but again, I think, I think we're up to it. We can, we can move a few pages over. So re- moving back to Romans 10:14, these are, we're going to look at the questions again that Paul asks. You know, I began sharing a little bit about the, the ministry of John Patton, and, but I didn't really finish his story. We don't have time to do that this morning, obviously, but the most amazing part of his story is not simply what he endured, although it is pretty amazing to think that one person could go through what he went through. But if you read his entire story, the most amazing part is actually what God did through the proclamation of the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands. As John Piper records it in his book, Patton actually doubted at first that God could change these people. He looked at them, he looked at their practices, their customs, their religion, and he admitted that he he almost was too discouraged to proclaim the gospel. He didn't think God could do anything with a people like this. But then he remembered. He remembered the power of God through the gospel. And he also remembered what God had done on nearby islands to save many people who were in the same situation. Over a period of about 15 years, Patton and his second wife, Margaret, sacrificially served these people in a variety of ways, proclaimed to them the gospel And in Patton's own words, he said, by the grace of God, the island now worships at the Savior's feet. This was ultimately the fruit of hearing the gospel. This is where we get back to Romans 10, 14 and the questions that Paul asks here. Remember, Paul has just said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So naturally, he asks in verse 14, well, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? People are not going to call out in faith to the Lord if they don't believe in him. Which leads to the second question. I mean, these just follow one after the other. How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? They can't believe in Christ if they've never heard of him. The message of Christ's life and death and resurrection God taking on flesh in the person of His Son is not intuitive. 
People have to hear this message verbally. They have to read it or hear it in their ears. This leads to Paul's third question in verse 15. How are they to hear without someone preaching? God could have chosen to write the message in the sky, in the clouds, for the entire world to hear. But in His wisdom and in His goodness and holiness, He has chosen to use human messengers for the task. Namely, His church. Namely, you and me. It's the church that sends out people to proclaim the gospel. This gets to Paul's fourth question here in this series of questions. So how are they to preach unless they are sent? Right? As an apostle, Paul was sent by God through the churches to proclaim the gospel among the Gentiles. Okay, we're not apostles today like Paul was, but there's a sense in which this mission is passed along to us. We carry out something similar to this mission in the Great Commission as we make disciples of all nations. In order to believe and be saved, the nations have to hear of what Christ has done in the gospel. This, this is Paul's conclusion in verse 17, a verse that's familiar to many of us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. Not through creation, not simply through what people think internally in their conscience. It comes through the word about Christ. Again, only God can save people. He has to open their hearts to believe, but it's our responsibility to communicate the message to them. And all of this leads to our third and final question this morning, which is, how then should we respond? If, if the unreached stand guilty in their sin, as do all people, And if their greatest need is to hear the gospel, then how should we respond to this? And before I suggest several ways for us to respond, I just want to point out two responses that maybe right now you're feeling and that I have felt on many occasions that are actually not very helpful. So two ways to respond that I don't find very helpful. One, we can hear a message like this and just feel guilty for all the spiritual privileges that we have. Hey, I've often done that. I've walked away from hearing someone talk about the need and thought, well, I just feel bad for all of my spiritual privileges. Hey, some of us have heard the gospel for not only years, but decades. Right? We can't even remember not hearing it. We've been a part of various faithful churches. We've never lacked access to the gospel. We've got all kinds of friends who are Christians. We have Bibles and Christian resources Right? And then we hear of people who have no access to the gospel, and it makes us feel guilty. Right? And it could be the Lord is genuinely convicting us of a blind spot. Okay? Maybe He's opening our eyes to, to a sin that we genuinely need to confess. Okay? I, and I would encourage you, if He's doing that in your life and in your heart even now, to go to Him in confession. Confess it to Him and trust Him for His forgiveness. But the problem is, just feeling guilty doesn't glorify God. And it doesn't actually help us carry out the mission faithfully either. At least not in a way that honors Him. People who just walk away feeling guilty usually will find some way to get rid of the guilt. Okay, maybe you'll give a little extra this week in the offering. 
Maybe you'll pray for a week or two. Might even go on a short-term mission trip if you could just get the guilt out of the way. But God isn't looking for people to simply unload their guilt so they can feel better. The Lord wants us to be a part of spreading His gospel because we love Him and because we love people. Right? If there's genuine conviction over sin, again, confess it. Right? Conviction's not a bad thing. The Lord brings conviction. There's a right sense of guilt that we should feel. But we don't live in that. Okay, this is where I think it's, it's healthy to distinguish between having a burden that the Lord gives and just feeling guilty. Right? You might think of it this way. If a close friend of yours is suffering, you don't help them because you feel guilty for not suffering. Right? You love them, and so you naturally want to see their suffering released. Right? That's the kind of burden we want to feel when it comes to the unreached. We want to see them experience the grace that we have received and that we don't deserve. Right? We have freely received and so we want to freely give. Okay? That's, that's different than just a low level of guilt because you have a lot of spiritual privileges. Right? Spiritual privileges ought to cause us to give thanks and want more people to have them. Okay? So that's one wrong way to hear a message like this. Right? A second way is just to hear these stats and these massive numbers and just to kind of check out mentally because it's all so overwhelming. I mean, what can you do, honestly, what can I do to get the gospel to three billion people? Right? And I would say to that, because I've, I've felt that way, I thought, okay, great, I, I don't want that to be the case, but what do I do for three billion people? Well, the good news is God hasn't called you or me to reach three billion people. He has called us as a church and as individuals, to be faithful as He makes His gospel known through His people in the power of His Spirit. Okay, Jesus is the one who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Jesus is building His church and He's using us to do it. Okay, we simply want to be faithful in the part that He has given us. And my desire is that all of us would walk away from these realities just with a clearer sense of how we can respond faithfully. So let me, so let me suggest uh, four different ways we can do that in closing here. Okay, to answer the question, how should we respond to these heavy and weighty realities about the unreached? One is simply just to embrace that you have a part in this mission. It's easy to think of missions as the job of missionaries or missions committees or just people who like to travel or who are more adventurous than you or have other opportunities than you. Okay, but the Great Commission wasn't given to missions committees and it wasn't even given to missionaries. The Great Commission was given to the church. It was first given to the apostles and through them to the church in all ages and that includes all of us. Right? We have different roles to play. The Lord likely isn't calling each of us to uproot our family and take them to the New Hebrides. Right? But He has joined us into this body and each of us has a role to play in this. Okay, So whenever we as a church partner with somebody for the spread of the gospel, that's something all of us have a part in. Okay, So let me encourage you to embrace your part 
from right here in Birmingham, Alabama, you have a part to play simply by being a Christian joined to this body and the spread of the gospel around the world. Just start there. Okay, a second way. Okay, and most of these you could have probably guessed before I gave them to you. Pray regularly for the spread of the gospel to the unreached. Matthew 9, 37 and 38, Jesus says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray that the Lord would raise up people to go from this church, from other gospel proclaiming churches in the area, and from churches around the world. Pray for laborers. This is not a minor role in this mission. Okay, I know when we talk about three billion, all this can sound very general, but make it more specific. Start by praying specifically for our mission's partners. Right? Learn their names. Learn their kids' names. Find out about the places where they're ministering, the challenges that they face. Find out about, find out about Busega, Uganda, Papua New Guinea, Poland, Find out about opportunities to spread the gospel in Turkey. Pick up one of the brochures back there at the welcome desk to tell you more about this. Find out if there are specific needs to pray for. I didn't ask Blake or Corey ahead of time here, but I'm guessing they would actually love to be bothered by emails from members saying, give me some more specific ways to pray for our missions partners. Be specific in your prayers. They may not have weekly updates. Right? They could at least, though, make some suggestions. Okay? Plan a rotation for you or your family of praying for a different partner each week. There's all kinds of ways you can weave this into your prayer life. Okay? And then beyond our missions partners, you certainly don't have to stop there. That's just, that's a great place to start. There are all kinds of websites that highlight the needs of unreached peoples and places around the world. Go to Joshua Project. Okay, joshuaproject.net, go to stratus.earth, peoplegroups.org. I'm happy to, to share those with you if you, don't, if you don't have time to write them down now. But there's all kinds of ways. Search by country and people group and find out about places that have no access to the gospel. Find out about their specific needs and pray for them. Joshua Project even has an app with an unreached people group of the day that will give you just a snapshot of how you can pray for them. So prayer is an important role in this mission. Number three, give sacrificially for the spread of the gospel. Pray earnestly and give sacrificially for the spread of this gospel. This is going to look different for different people in here, but for all of us, our giving is just one important way we contribute to this mission. Okay, I mentioned earlier in Romans 15, one of the reasons... Paul writes to the church there, and so they'll help support him in his mission to Spain. The church in Rome had an integral part in seeing the gospel spread where it had never gone. Okay, when you put money in the, the basket each week, this is part of what your giving goes towards. Yes, there's other needs we address, but this is a part of it. Okay, it's so easy just to put it in there and not even think about it. But our giving is an act of worship. We honor the Lord when we say with our money, Lord, more than catering to my own comforts, I want your church to be built up and I want your name to be made known in all the earth. That's part of what we're doing when we put money in the basket. 
And just remember, I mentioned earlier, this is giving that flows from grace, not guilt. Second Corinthians, Paul tells them, the Lord loves a what? A cheerful giver. God doesn't need our money, but He gives us the privilege of storing up treasures in heaven when we give to make His gospel known. And then fourth and finally, consider whether the Lord would have you go. Okay, I don't want to overlook the fact that the Lord could call one or more of us to go, even if you don't think that's even a possibility right now. Right? Perhaps the Lord is stirring in someone here a greater desire to be part of a church planning team in a place where there are few churches, whether that's in North America, whether that's in another part of the world, whether that's among the hardest to reach places. Maybe your business experience or your life experience could be used to make Christ known in a place where He's not now known. That starts by being faithful right where we are. If you're not living for the spread of the gospel here, getting on a plane is not going to change that. Ask the Lord to help you to be faithful, to open your heart to wherever He might lead. Maybe for our youth here, this would be a good prayer for you to begin praying even now. Ask God to use your life to make His gospel known wherever He wills. Whether that's here or somewhere across the world. That would be a good prayer to pray as you think about your future. We ought to be praying that the Lord would raise up our children to do this. Yeah, I know that can be a really hard thing to pray. Right, as a parent, just being honest, that's not an easy prayer. I mean, it's easy to say, but to really mean it. Lord, would you raise up my kids? Would you raise up other kids in this church? Would you save them and then use them for the spread of the gospel? Right, we spend a lot of time thinking about how they can be successful in school and sports and all kinds of activities, but when is the last time we prayed the Lord might use them for the spread of His gospel around the world? Right, may the Lord use them and us however He chooses. And let's, let's not fool ourselves. The cost is high. The cost is high, but the good news is the reward is far, far greater. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. And would You use us, would You use this church to cause Your name to be hallowed and known and enjoyed in Birmingham and to the ends of the earth. We confess that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves, but we look to You for grace and strength. Use us as a church so that Christ would be known in places where He is not now known. We pray that You would do it for His glory. Amen.